here on KCOU, brought to you by Sticklin and Dryer Law Firm. It's going to be another great episode of Triple Threat today on KCOU. My name is Kyle Jones, and it's a special edition of Triple Threat because this week it is just threat. Rare occurrence here on KCOU, but we get a solo show of yours truly. And I figured when I've got an hour of airtime to myself, I ought to bust out my favorite little bit of thing, and that is Suwannee football. Now, I don't think anybody in Columbia knows what Suwannee football is. But it is genuinely one of the best things because I'm going to talk to you this week about the Swanee football team of 1899. So let's get started. So a little background. During the 2019 college football season, the Tennessee Volunteers played 13 games between August 31st and January 2nd. Of these 13 games, all except one were played on a Saturday. And each game had at least a week break between them. It's a typical SEC football schedule. You know, you play every team in your division, a few from the other division, a few non-cons, and then you add in a bowl game and you get your you know, perfect schedule. Sometimes you'll play a team on a Thursday, but most times a college football team is only going to play once a week and they're not going to play again for the, uh, for the rest of that week. Now, this whole setup ensures that players are going to be well-rested, injuries are kept to a minimum, and that means that the least amount of days spent between games is five, Saturday to Thursday, five days. Now, that number five for the Tennessee Volunteers is completely insignificant. But on top of a mountain about two and a half hours southwest of Knoxville, the number five is legendary. Because in 1899, the team from that mountain played five games in six days, and on the seventh day, they rested. This is the story of the greatest team in the history of college football. And I am now joined by the second member of Triple Threat, Cole Tussing. Cole, I think I've told you the story of the 1899 Swanee Tigers before, haven't I? Um, you may have at some point, but you know, just to jog my memory, I think I came in as you were ending the story. Well, this, that's, this is not the end. This is just the beginning, Cole. So let us go because this is going to be our this is going to be our episode today. I figured this is a great way to spend a nice lazy uh, nice lazy Friday, um, especially since I thought I was just going to be on my lonesome here. So let's just get this started. Atop 13,000 acres of land on Mont Eagle Mountain sits a small private Episcopal University. Now, since it's part of the Cumberland Plateau, Mont Eagle Mountain is not actually a real mountain, but the school has kind of called themselves the school on the mountain. They've retained their, you know, their, you know, mountaintop identity. The university was founded by a group of Episcopal bishops and is famous for its school of theology. I should know a member of my family has gone there for the last, like, six generations. So, so I should know how, how good this school's school of theology is. Now, it's a beautiful campus, rich history, and a football team who first started playing in 1891. And they were known then, as they are now, 
as the Tigers. They currently play in the NCAA Division Three. So it begs the question, Cole, and I'm sure you're thinking, how does the Division Three Sewanee Tigers get to have the title of greatest team ever? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think it comes down to, you know, those Division Two, Division Three schools or FCS schools that, you know, have the comparison of being the greatest team ever because a team like North Dakota State is arguably the best team in the FCS. And I know a lot of people can argue on it saying North Dakota State should be a team that moves up to the FBS in the Nets conference realignment. Yeah, so so there's definitely a few there's definitely a few ways to kind of describe why the 1899 Sewanee Tigers were the best team ever. But in order to really kind of break it down, you have to go back to football in its very infancy. Now, football in the 1800s was nothing like it is today. The forward pass wasn't really a thing. Uh, the play style was more of just a you know screwed up version of rugby. Uh, half the rules we have today about holding and interference and that did not exist. Uh, you'd have teams punting before fourth down uh, because they figured a punt would give them better better field position um, later on down the line. Um, you know you'd have teams who you know if they scored they would have the option to kick back to the team right so they they they. Um, like so, if you got scored on, you could you could be the one to kick. It wasn't the team who scored then immediately kicked back. So uh, it was a lot of very similar to rugby, and that also meant a lot of fumbles. Now remember what I said earlier: the number five is really significant here. In 1899, a touchdown was worth five points. So was a field goal, um, and it wasn't really kind of it wasn't really like the field goals we have today. It was kind of like a penalty kick in rugby. So if you had a foul, if you have a foul committed on a player or a penalty committed on a player, um, they could choose to kick the ball through the uprights, and that would be five points. Uh, but then they would lose the opportunity for the extra point that came after a touchdown. Um, safeties were still two, so so you, you got that. Now, in in the early days of football, Cole. Um, the powers were mostly in the Northeast. There was Rutgers who invented the game. There was Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the Ivies, right? As well as, interestingly enough, and I know you're, you're a Chicago boy, you like to hear this, the University of Chicago on the rise back in those 18, 1880s, 90s uh, college football days. Um, and if you look at the scores from 1899, uh, you'll find a sport that has zero true competition. Um, these were blowouts, and the Ivies always won. Um, the football was terrible. Uh, the rules weren't really set in stone yet. There was no real heroes. It was um, it was just not a crazy sport. But still, the crowd showed up, um, mostly for school spirit, um, general camaraderie. It was a big social event, right? Now, the South wouldn't get their hands on collegiate football till the very end of the 1800s. Um, the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Association formed in 1894. Now, the SIAA was home to some schools that you will have heard of, Cole. Alabama, Auburn, Clemson, LSU. Basically, if they're in the SEC or the ACC today, there's a pretty good chance that they were in the SIAA in 1894. And among all of these titans of the game was Sewanee, which is crazy. Because, like, 
at the time there was maybe like you know four, maybe two hundred people at the school. I mean, it, it's so even today. There, I I think the the enrollment at Swanee is like stupid small. Like let me let me just check right now. Swanee enrollment. 1,793. There are Texas high school graduating classes that are just about as big as that. I am my graduating high school class was bigger than that. Exactly. And that is a college enrollment. That is college enrollment. Now, to retract your point, you know, not to, you know, cut you off on a story, you know, this history lesson, but you mentioned, you know, any scheme that's in the SEC or in the ACC is probably in that, you know, Southwest, you know, realignment, whatever you, you know, mentioned. Does that consider schools like Mizzou, Texas A&M, or Maryland, who were once in the ACC? So Missouri was not in the SIAA. Um, I believe they were uh, they were a little bit too far north for the SIAA. Texas A&M was independent because they were a military school at the time, um, and then Maryland was not either. But actually, Maryland might have been. Um, but a lot of those SEC schools, your Ole Miss, your you know. Your Florida, I think Florida was in there. Florida State was in there as well. Um, Georgia, Clemson, LSU. Um, I mentioned Bama and Auburn. Um, the, the, I think Louisiana Tech, which went by a different name back then, was also part of the SIA. So, so a lot of these heavy hitters uh, were, were the founding members. Um, but we, in order to really kind of encapsulate what Swanee was, we have to talk about Luke Lee uh, because he was insane. Now, Luke Lee was born in Nashville in 1879. He was named after his great-grandfather, who was a U.S. senator. He went to Swanee, got his bachelor's in 1899, and his master's in, 1990, in 1900. Wound up going to Columbia Law, graduated from Columbia Law in 1903, passed the bar, and practiced in Nashville. He owned a newspaper. He served as a senator, and he even fought in World War I. Um, and his time in the military can be summed up by... The story of him attempting to kidnap Kaiser Wilhelm. Yes, that one. The actual leader of Germany at the time. Uh, He tried to kidnap Kaiser Wilhelm. So, alongside future MLB Hall of Famer Larry McPhail, Lee and his buddies snuck into the Netherlands and tried to break into the chateau where Kaiser Wilhelm was living at the time, right? Now, Lee claimed that he was the son of a local count and uh, this blew the gov- this blew the group's cover because it was very clear that he was not German. Uh, they were forced to then run away, and the only thing that they got out of this whole ordeal was a stolen ashtray. They were trying to steal the Kaiser. They got away with an ashtray. <laughs> um, after the war, he goes into banking. Uh, he was then arrested for bank fraud, claimed he was framed, fought his conviction for years all the way to the Supreme Court, who refused to hear his case. He served two years in a Raleigh prison, was paroled in 1937, and then died eight years later at Vanderbilt University Hospital at the age of 66. Now, Lee probably wasn't happy that his last breaths were taken at Vanderbilt University because the Commodores at the time were the biggest rivals of his beloved Sewanee Tigers. And, and still to this day, Sewanee football has a chant. Rip them up, tear them up, leave them in the lurch. Down with the heathen, up with the church. Yay, Sewanee's right. The heathen in the chant is thought to be the Methodists of Vanderbilt. 
and then up with the church in reference to the Episcopal Church in Suwannee. Now, now Luke Lee was a massive football fan. Uh, he he probably had the position existed would have been an athletic director. That would have been where he went. At the ripe age of 20, Lee was the student manager for the Swanee Tigers football team. Now, in those days, the manager was kind of like today's ADs. He dealt with scheduling, resources, other parts of the business of football. Swanee was in a rough spot because on the top of that mountain, it was hard to convince teams to go up and play them. So they played most of their games on the road. Now, in 1899... Unable to find any opponents because of how far west they were, the University of Texas invited Sewanee out to Austin to play. Um, and because of the money that was offered, it was an offer that Luke Lee could not refuse. Um, but he did know that the cost of travel would far outweigh any financial gains made from the trip. So he found a solution. He would schedule games on the return trip to make up for the expensive price of train tickets. Now, let me spell out this plan for you, Cole. Here's how it works. Texas was going to pay Sewanee $700. That's about $20,000 today to come to Austin. A massive sum at the time. All Lee had to do was find someone else who could cover the rest of the trip. But then someone became two someones, and then three someones, and in the end... In order to cover the cost of taking the train down to Austin to play Texas, the Tigers played four teams on their return trips, which meant round trip, five games, five teams in one week. Um, I mean, it's, it's insane. They started off with a short trip to Atlanta to begin the season. They played Georgia and Georgia Tech. They beat them both. Then they went home. They played Tennessee, beat them. Followed by a game against Southwest Presbyterian, which we now know as Rhodes. They beat them. And then they went on this road trip where they played Texas, Texas A&M, Tulane, LSU, and Ole Miss in five days. Now, obviously, you've you know mentioned time and time again, you know, it's not the same, you know, football or college football that we know as today, but, you know... Regardless of that, playing Division One college football that many games with that many you know restless nights, that's going to take a toll on you. The longer you do it, and like by like day three or day four, you're just going to be dead in the water. Yeah, and so here's the deal. After this road trip, they came home. They played their final home game against Cumberland, and then traveled to Montgomery to play Auburn. That was the spelled out schedule in the beginning. And this whole schedule was supposed to take place over one month. So it wasn't just that they were playing five games in five games. They were playing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve games in a month from October 21st to November 30th. I mean, it's insane what they had to do. Um, the, the UGA game and the Tech game were played within three days of each other. There was only a five-game, a five-day break before the Tennessee game. The Tigers did not get a full seven days rest till after the game against Ole Miss, which was the end of their second road trip. I mean, it was insane. Um, and you look at it, like Luke Lee 
set this up because of money. He's a very money-conscious guy. Um, when, he was in the, when he was a senator, he lobbied for an eight-hour workday. He strove to end child labor. He supported the creation of the Federal Reserve System. He also supported women's suffrage, which was actually pretty crazy for a Southerner at the time. Um, he advocated for the 17th Amendment. Um, when he ran the newspaper in Nashville, uh, he also founded the American Legion, which today supports America's veterans nationwide. Um, he was opportunistic, and he excelled in a lot of areas where people couldn't. But he was also insane. Um, because outside of his work in the Senate... He also, as I mentioned, did bank fraud. Like, and, and was like, you know, I just insane. The, the, the things this did was, he was crazy. He was a maniac. Um, but at the end of the day, he, in many ways, created the environment for the, you know, creation of the greatest football team in the history of the sport. So, when we get back, Cole, I am going to run through who these guys were and what they did. Because I'll tell you what, it's insane. Triple Threat, brought to you by Sickle and Dry Law Firm here on KCOU. We'll be right back. A delicious power breakfast. Great way to start the day. I'm Brandon Anthony. And I'm Keegan Harbin. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. to listen to me. And me. On our new show, Breakfast of Champions. Here on KCOU Sports, KCOU 88.1 FM. Young people from all walks of life have volunteered to take part in a frightening experiment. They are allowing their brains to be altered. Altered to induce paranoia, heart malfunction, memory loss, even early senility. Unfortunately, this is not an experiment. It's what slowly happens to you when you keep smoking pot. No one has to alter your brain. You've already volunteered to do it to yourself. This is how we do every day. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. And welcome back, Triple Threat, brought to you by Sticklin' and Dry Law Firm here on KCOU. And it is time now to introduce you to the starting lineups for your fighting 1899 Suwannee Tigers. Starting at the line, let's look at the tackle. Five foot ten from Edna, Texas, Richard E. Bowling at guard, the menacing six foot one ninety pound grad transfer from Roanoke College from Amherst County, Virginia, Wild Bill Claiborne. At tackle from Marshall, it's Deacon Jones. 
At guard from the fair city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Henry Keyes. At end from Jackson, Mississippi, standing 5'3", 125 pounds, proving big things can come in small packages, is Bunny Pierce. At center, only 19 years of age, from Glendon, Maryland, 6' tall, 185 pounds, it's William Poole. And rounding off the line, at end, standing 6' tall, from Bryan, Texas, 21 years of age, Bartlett at Ultimus Sims, also known as the Caboose. Cole, talk to me. What do you think about the names on that starting lineup? I mean, just the names itself, you know, are shocking. But, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, you you constantly making Donald's claim that this is the greatest college ball team ever. And while you're doing that, I'm actually doing some digging myself right now as I'm talking for the greatest college football teams ever. And you see teams like the 2005 Texas Longhorns that unfortunately beat my USC Trojans in the national championship with Vince Young. You have the 2019 LSU Tigers. You have the teams like Miami, like the 80s, 90s, who are seen as the greatest teams of all time. So how does the Swanee team match up against some of these historic teams as well. Well, let's start by talking about the backfield. At halfback from Ocala, Florida, Charles Gray. Standing 5'10", weighing 163 pounds at fullback. His father might have fired the first shot of the Civil War. This is actually a thing that might have happened. Uh, Accounts differ, but Orman Simpkins, his father, um, was stationed at, uh, at Fort Sumter. And uh, differing accounts state that he might have fired the shot that started the Civil War. Um, hailing from Bridgeport, Alabama, the speedy six-foot-one halfback Rex Kilpatrick. He does a lot in the 80, 1899 season. And then transferring from South Carolina, the quarterback for the team, Warbler Wilson. And then last but certainly not least, from Montgomery, Alabama, standing five foot ten, the team captain. Halfback, Diddy Seibels. And Diddy Seibels is a champ goal. That's the lineup for the 1899 Swanee Tigers. Let's get into what they did during the season. And when you hear about what they did in their games, you will find out why I consider them the best football team of all time. Season starts in Atlanta. They play the Bulldogs. Bulldogs were a young program, but they were coming off of an admittedly successful 4-2 season in 1898. The only losses for that season were against North Carolina and Auburn. Two weeks before this game, Georgia had beaten Clemson 11-0. Swanee didn't care. The school paper, the Swanee Purple, said, From the moment referee Taylor blew his whistle announcing the beginning of play until timers Todd and Thornton put an end to the contest by calling time, the Sewanee Partisans knew the game was won. It was a sellout crowd, and Sewanee did not care about Georgia. They rolled over the Bulldogs 12 to nothing. Sewanee Purple named Simpkins, Sims, and Kilpatrick as players of the game. Three days later, they take on Georgia Tech. And this was an even crazier one. In the second half, Diddy Seibel scored within the first five, or rather, with five minutes left in the match, to seal the Sewanee win 13 to nothing. The Sewanee Purple said that the team looked 
unstoppable. They also claim that the trip to Georgia between the game against UGA and Georgia Tech netted the squad more than $100 over the two games. That's worth about $3,000 in today's money. So not only did they kick those two teams' butts, they made $3,000 off of it. Next game, they come back up to the top of the mountain, and they take on Tennessee. It's a kind of a local rivalry match. Not as big as the games against Vandy, but still a pretty big rivalry. Um, and Sewanee didn't have any problems whatsoever. Six minutes into the game, the score was 12-0. Um, and it just continued like this for the whole game. At halftime, Sewanee led 29-0. And then by the end of the day, Sewanee emerged 46-0 winners. The Purple said the only reason that the Tigers stopped scoring was from exhaustion. The, uh, the I believe it was Knoxville Courier-Journal, held the, first, the final count as three touchdowns for Diddy Seibels, two for Warbler-Wilson, and one touchdown each for Pierce, Hull, and Kirkpatrick. Against Tennessee. Then they play Rhodes. No problems there. Halftime score was 32-0. At one point, it was 43. Finally, after the game had to be called for darkness, final score, 54 to nothing. So after four games, goal, Tigers were 4-0, had outscored opponents 144 to nothing. It was insane. So, this is what leads us into the road trip. And the Sewanee Purple was really, really confident. They declared that the fame of Sewanee would, quote, be spread about in that land, and she will reap a harvest of students. And furthermore, despite our friends, the Croakers, we are going to beat Texas and Baton Rouge and Tulane and everyone else we play to the intensification of our college consciousness, our college pride, our college spirit, whatever you choose to call it, and to the glorification of the true sportsmanlike manhood of Sewanee. This was after four games. This, they still have an entire season ahead of them. And they're about to play some of the best teams in the, in the South, and they've just declared this goal. What do you think about that declaration of superiority from Sewanee? All right, it's something you love to see because, I mean, college football, when I talked about this on the podcast I promoted last week of comparing college football versus the NFL, but college football, you know, it gets unorthodox at times, but there's a lot of, you know, culture. There's a lot of things that college football teams do that you never see in the NFL, like think about when Vanderbilt started off the year. I think it was either three and zero or four and zero in like 2018, and then they said, you know, all the fans, all the players said, "Bama's next. We want Bama." And then Bama proceeded to, you know, kick them down by like 50 points or something. Yeah. Well, here's the deal: Tigers hit the train and head on to Austin to play Texas. The trip. Got off to a horrible start. The team actually left their cleats back at campus in Sewanee. But Luke Lee was able to send word back to the school via telegram, and the the shoes were delivered on a later train. Sewanee arrived in Austin on November 8th, ready to take on the Longhorns the very next afternoon. Texas was undefeated at the time, 3-0. But in front of a crowd of 2,500, the Sewanee Tigers won the game, 12 nothing. 
by the end of the game, Diddy Seibel's had a cut above his eye and was covered in blood. The New Orleans Times-Picayune reported that the game was, quote, the liveliest battle ever witnessed in Austin. 24 hours later, the Tigers took on Texas A&M at Harold Park in Houston. Now, an interesting little thing about Harold Park. At the time, it was the home of the Houston Buffaloes baseball team. They were a minor league affiliate of the St. Louis Cardinals until 1958. Then they became the minor league affiliate of the Chicago Cubs. Now, the team would eventually be bought by the Houston Sports Association in 1961. They were renamed the Colt 45s and moved to Colt Stadium. Then they were renamed the Astros upon their move to the Astrodome in 1985, or rather 1965. And of course, Cole, the rest is history. So, uh, nice little, nice little, little kind of thread there. Anyway, the game in Swanee was the first time A&M had ever played an out-of-state opponent. And because of his swollen eye that he had received earlier in the game, Wild Bill Claiborne reportedly stared Aggie players down and told them, see this, pointing to his eye. I lost it in Austin yesterday. This afternoon, I'm getting a new one, implying he was going to rip out one of the Aggies players' eyes and use it as his own. Which to me is the most metal thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, it was insane. What's even cooler is that the Tigers had no problem with the Aggies and beat them 10-0. The A&M school paper, the battalion, said after the game, quote, the Sewanee Tigers are unmistakably the champions of the South this year. No questions asked. The Tigers would then go on to play Tulane in New Orleans. It was a fun one for the Tigers. They, uh, they were back and forth, back and forth. Still unscored on, by the way. Still haven't been scored on this season, sitting at 6-0. and And by the end of that game, Sewanee beat Tulane 23 to nothing. Apparently, one of the plays where Sewanee scored in this game was just absolutely crazy. Um, apparently, there was a 15-yard run by Warbler Wilson, five yards of which the Times-Picayune claims were, quote, due to a water boy getting in the way when leaving the field. 1890s football was insane. But after the 23 win against Tulane, they had a free day on November 12th. They spent a little time touring the uh, the plantation, the sugar plantation of John Dalton Schaefer, who was an alum of Sewanee, um, and then went on to play LSU. LSU was coming off of an 11 nothing win against Ole Miss the year before. They had only played one game, but in that one game, they had beat Tulane 37 nothing. So it was a good team. And Sewanee was playing their fourth game in five days, so they had to have been exhausted. But in front of 2,000 fans on State Field, which is now the home of the Louisiana State Capitol building, the Sewanee Tigers beat LSU 34 to nothing. 
According to the Nashville American, LSU never even got a first down. That was how bad they beat them. And with that game, they had gone undefeated over the craziest road trip in history. Four games in five days. They were undefeated, unscored on, and after eight games, despite very little rest. So it was absolutely insane, and they had just blown at every team they played. Now here's the fun part. They come back to uh, they come back to, um, to Tennessee. They go to Memphis and they play Ole Miss, right? Now apparently this was just an insane game because the Tigers beat Memphis twelve nothing. Five games, six days, five wins. They outscored their opponents by an unprecedented, never-to-be-matched score of 91 nothing in the span of their road trip. Which means that the Sewanee Purple had called it earlier in the year when they said they would beat everyone, because they did. So they return home on, on November 15th, goal 1899. Record of 9-0 and overall. On the season, they'd outscored opponents by a combined 235 to nothing. They had beaten teams that are today some of the best, right? Georgia, Georgia Tech, Tennessee, Texas, Texas A&M, LSU, and Ole Miss all falling to the men in purple. And five days later, they go to Cum- they go and they take on Cumberland at home. Now, in 1903, Cumberland would go on their own five-day road trip, winning three games that they played in that span. In 1916, Cumberland played Georgia Tech and famously lost by an astounding total of 222 to nothing. Still the most lopsided game in the history of the sport. Now, Sewanee wouldn't beat Cumberland that bad. But they did have a score of 47 nothing at the half. And by the end of the game had won 71 nothing. The Sewanee Purple described the game as a foot race where, quote, the varsity scored when they wished to. Sewanee was 10-0 at the end of this game, unscored on still, and finally were heading to Montgomery, Alabama for a date with Auburn and the man who would be Cumberland's doom 17 years later. Because this is where Sewanee truly cements their legacy, Cole. Let me tell you about Auburn in 1899. They were coached by a certain football god. John Heisman. Yes, that one. Now, I am still cont- I'm still of the mind that John Heisman is the best coach ever. Saban's great. Bear Bryant is amazing. You know, he- he's a legend. Are we talking about college football or the NFL? I'm talking about football. Okay, because for me, football, it's Vince Lombardi. Vince Lombardi is great, but John Heisman is another level. He began his coaching career at Oberlin College in 1892, and he had an almost dictatorial style of coaching. His players actually, and he described himself as a czar. He once said, quote, Better to have died as a small boy than to fumble this football. And that was not said in jest. That was a very serious remark from him. He invented the snap. He invented the fake snap. 
He legalized the forward pass. He invented the hidden ball play. He came up with the idea of putting downs and yards to go on scoreboards. He signed the first ever Hawaiian player. He changed college football from a game of two halves to four quarters. He coached at Auburn, Clemson, Georgia Tech, Penn, and Rice. He won the SIAA seven times as well as a national championship in a time where the national championship scene was dominated by the Upper East Coast. He won an SIAA baseball championship with Georgia Tech in 1906. His career record as a football coach was 186, 70, and 18. He was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 1954. And then, of course, obviously, we have the Heisman Trophy named after him. Now, in 1899, he was still at Auburn. Team was regarded as the best one of his career up to this point. They were undefeated and unscored upon heading into their final game of the season. They held wins against Georgia and Clemson, and then they also tied in a second game against Georgia. Now, they had outscored their opponents by a combined 138 to nothing over those four games. And by all accounts, Heisman was headed for a groundbreaking season in what would appear to be his final year at Auburn. But there was one last hurdle, Cole. The Sewanee Tigers. Now, in what has been described as the prettiest game which has ever been played upon a southern gridiron, the Sewanee Tigers traveled to Montgomery and played John Heisman's Auburn. Now, here's the deal. Auburn scored first. And for the first time in the 1899 season, Sewanee trailed 5-0 after a touchdown. But the Tigers weren't just going to roll over. They would go on to score 10 unanswered points and would lead 10-5. And then, by the end of things, the Sewanee Tigers would win the football game 11-10. Sewanee against the best coach ever and one of the best teams in the South at the time had come from behind to win in a nail-biter. Now, the winning touchdown of this game is different depending on who tells it. According to the Alabama Constitution, Auburn's right guard Martin fell on the loose ball on a fumble. But to W.B. Tickenor, who wrote the report... Heisman's and the rest of the Auburn team and fans shock, the referee awarded the ball to Suwanee. On the very next play, Warbler Wilson executed a, a double pass play, a play that Heisman himself invented at Oberlin to score a touchdown. Sims nailed the extra point, and Suwanee won 11-10. Now, according to the Suwanee Purple, it was a just regular old fumble, and, uh, and Suwanee recovered. But not only do we get a nail-biting win over one of the greatest coaches ever and one of the greatest teams in the South at the time, it has a controversy. And there is no good story that is told that doesn't have a controversy. And that's what we got here. It was beautiful. This win set Swanee up for an extra game that was not originally on the schedule. A game in Atlanta against North Carolina for the championship of the South. Now, let's head to Atlanta for the last part of our story 
for the championship of the South. And I have a pretty nice script written here, Cole. So I'm just going to read it. I've had a script for the whole episode, as I think folks have (laughs) realized. Uh, But I've been kind of abridging it. Um, I I originally told this story for my my own personal YouTube miniseries uh, over the summer when I wasn't doing anything. It's 13 pages long. Um, which that's, that's more than an hour worth. I think I, I did, uh, I had seven videos each about 15 minutes in length. So you do the math. I mean, you're doing great so far, but you know, as you've been talking, I did a little research on arguably the greatest recent college football team ever, but you know, you continue with your story then I'll jump in. Let me tell you about the championship of the South Cole. Now, remember the number five is significant in our story, right? On December 2nd, 1899, the Suwannee Tigers played the North Carolina Tar Heels in Atlanta in front of a crowd of 2,000. The game was hard fought. The Atlanta Constitution dubbed it the fiercest football contest of the season. Now, in the first half, North Carolina took the ball all the way to the Suwannee goal line, almost guaranteeing themselves a touchdown. But the Tigers held firm and stopped the Heels on five plays. Five because... The Tar Heels had been penalized, or rather the Swanee had been penalized for offside. So Tar Heels got five chances, couldn't get a single one in. After that close call, Sewanee was pretty dominant. The ball did not leave UNC territory for the rest of the first half. But Sewanee couldn't find the end zone. Towards the end of the half, UNC was forced to punt. Simpkins weighed fair catch, but the UNC right in Osborne tackled him anyway. Sewanee was awarded a 15 yards for the roughing, and they were given a free kick. That free kick was promptly put through the uprights for what was, in the end, Sewanee's first field goal of the season. Back in 1899, Cole, field goals were worth five. So the Tigers led five Nothing. In the second half, UNC battled hard. They controlled possession. They tried everything they could, but they could never find the end zone. And when the final whistle blew, Sewanee celebrated as champions of the South and five nothing winners. In five games, the men of Sewanee became legendary, accomplishing a feat that will never be accomplished again. And with five points they became champions of the South. The 1899 season is still the winningest season in program history. The team finished 12-0, outscoring opponents 322-10. The SIAA championship was the second of three that the Swanee Tigers would earn. They would actually go on to win the championship the following year. Now, today, the Swanee Tigers are a shadow of their former glory, losing every game in the 2019 season before having their 2020 season shut down due to COVID. But at McGee Field at Harrison's, or at Harris Stadium, rather, the same very field where the 1899 Suwannee Tiger football team played, the legend of the 1899 team lives on. They were gladiators. They were champions. They were the Ironmen. In 1899, the Suwannee Tigers played five games in six days. And on the seventh day, they rested. 
And that is our story. <laughs> you know, that's a lot. You know, practically took up the whole show. So, you know, a lot of great content. So while you're talking, while you're saying, you know, not really being over the head, but, you know, constantly bringing back this point that this Swanee team is, in your eyes, the greatest college football team ever. And while you're talking, you know, giving that history lesson, I did a little research and I found out a team that could maybe challenge them. Who you got? The 2001 Miami Hurricanes. Okay. Seen as by everyone I've, you know, looked at, you know, while you're talking, seen as the greatest team ever assembled in college football. You had Ken Dorsey, the quarterback, who is a two-time Heisman finalist. The team averaged 43 points a game. Meanwhile, the Miami Hurricanes allowed nine points a game while holding eight of their opponents to seven points or less. Their last four matchups in the regular season, they were all against ranked opponents, top 15 and above in the AP poll. They outscored them by a combined score of 187 to 45. When they play against number 14, Syracuse, and number 12, Washington, by two games, scored a combined 124 to 7. Now, some players on the NFL team, some of them you recognize, you know, you're a former Houston Tetson fan, or maybe still. Andre Johnson. Hey, hey, big Andre. Frank Gore, Ed Reed, Sean Taylor. Now, I did a little research. 21 players on their 44 roster, one on to get drafted in the NFL, which means when you're a matchup against this Miami team, there is a 50% chance that the player you are matched up in guarding in the game goes on to play professional. That's pretty freaking good. Um, I'm not going to debate that. And there is a, there's a very strong argument. And, and, and at the end of the day, these teams all played in different eras. Certainly, I'd say Swanee is the best team of their era. Um, I would say that Miami, that particular Hurricanes team, is the best of their era. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what just has to be reiterated is that Five games in six days against some of the best teams in the South, and Sewanee beat all of them. Interestingly enough, about eh, 30 years later, in December of 1932, a couple of, of teams, about 13, 14 teams, gathered in Knoxville, Tennessee, on top of the Appalachian Mountains, and formed a conference. The members of that conference included Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, LSU, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Georgia Tech, Tulane, and Sewanee. Cole, do you know what the name of that conference was? And it is. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, off the top of my head, you mentioned a lot of teams, you know, in the SEC. You mentioned Swanee. You mentioned Tulane. Um, I know it's not the Southwest Conference because otherwise I'll be teams like, nope, you know, all the Texas schools. And like you're Oklahoma. close. You're close. But is it still a conference but different teams or did it just get disbanded? Most of the teams, if not all of them, except for three and with the addition of Two, well, actually, an addition of three. They, they've had three teams leave and three teams join since their inception 
in 1932. Actually, four teams join. My apologies. Today, the members of this conference call include Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, LSU, Mississippi, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, Texas A&M, South Carolina, Arkansas, and Missouri. Because Cole, in 1932, the Sewanee Tigers were one of the founding members of the SEC. That's crazy to think about. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, the SEC has been around for clearly such a long time, and, you know, it's a Power Five conference, and there's a lot of history behind it. But you know what? I think one thing that, you know, you mentioned that, in your opinion, the era, that's the greatest college football team ever. And, you know, I went on a tangent argument, if you will, about 2001 Miami being the greatest team ever. But there's, like, teams like LSU in 2019. There's 2013. There's Florida State. In 2015, I think, there was Oregon with Marcus Mariota. 2005 with Vince Young at Texas. Like, there's just so many historic greatest teams ever. And I think one thing that NCAA football, the video game that's going to come out in a few years, can do is bring all those historic teams back and allow users to play with those very historic teams. I think that'd be a really, really cool thing. I agree. We don't have too much time on the show. We have about five minutes. So, Cole, is there anything that you think you can talk about in the next five minutes? So, I guess five minutes. So, number one, um, the SEC released their predictions for the football schedule for the S, so the East and the West. And I saw Mizzou was projected to finish third in the division with seven wins. I think that is fair. Um, I think, you know, Missouri is still at the detriment of having to play in the same division as Georgia and Florida, two great teams. I think those two are going to battle it out for the top of the division, no questions asked. Um, But I also think that if this is a year where, you know, know, this, this could be a year where Missouri surprises people. You've got, you know, another year of, you know, Eli Drinkwitz. He's coming into his own. And if you look at the schedule, and I'm going to pull it up now, because there is a lot of games on this thing that I think Missouri will have not too much problem with. So let's look at the schedule in the last about four minutes. Central Michigan, Kentucky, SEMO, Boston College, Tennessee, Northern Texas, or North Texas, rather. Texas A&M, Vandy, Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, Arkansas. There are two games Three. There are three games on that schedule that I think Missouri either is for sure losing or has a pretty uh, pretty high chance of losing. I think I can guess the three. It's Georgia at Georgia, Florida, and then Texas A&M. You are correct, because I think Texas A&M is challenging for the SEC championship this upcoming season. I, I think they're going to give Bama, finally, a run for their money. Now, look, I know a lot of people talk about this, but it seems like there's a common opinion. I don't know about you feel about this, that Mizzou may go into that A&M game, be 7-0. and I think there's a very high chance of that. They're either going to be 7-0 and or 6-1. and Either way, it's going to be a close one um, in terms of record. 
I don't think it's going to be a close one in terms of game. I think the Texas A&M Aggies, and I'm I'm high on the Aggies as someone who grew up with the team, but just watching the direction they're going in, they they seem so good. Um, I just think they're going to be one of the better teams in the SEC this year. Of course, knowing A&M, they'll they'll you know they'll they'll do something stupid and they'll blow it all. But you know, a man can dream, right? So your prediction, it's Mizzou goes nine and three, or minimum they lose three games. I think at minimum they lose three games. Knowing knowing Mizzou, they'll they'll find a way to do something even dumber. Um, but but I think at the end of the day they'll go nine and three. This isn't a Barry Odom team, so don't worry. That's true. That is true. Yeah. Now, uh, interesting little note, just because I was I was kind of. Scoping around. Um, now, Sewanee did play one game this year. Uh, no fans in attendance. They lost 24-21 to Greensboro. Um, obviously, in 2020, they didn't play a season. In 2019, they didn't win a single game. So they have now gone like two years without winning a game. Um, but they do have their they do have their schedule out for the fall of 2021 season and they're playing some interesting teams they're playing at saint scholastica at washington and lee and then they host westminster who play right down the road from here they go on the road to birmingham southern and then they host interestingly enough a team from the 1899 season Rhodes. they play at barry they host trinity from texas and then they play one of the schools that my father went to Millsaps, and then they host Center and Hendricks. So still plenty of football on tap for the Sewanee Tigers. All of, I guess it'd be what, um, 119 years later? No. I can't do math. What's, 20, <laughs> what's 2021 minus 1899? Let's let's do let's do some quick maths before we go. It has to end with a two. One hundred twenty-two. Okay. One hundred twenty-two. That's all we have for today, folks. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Triple Threat, brought to you by Stickler and Dryer Law Firm. We'll be right back next week, same time, same place. So stay tuned for more. Have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>